Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. This is episode 28 and we are back to our series titled I Swear to Tell the Whole Truth. And this is part three in that series. And in this episode, we will be discussing severe and life-threatening injuries and what they mean from a legal perspective, as well as citations. So you will hear our three speakers introduce themselves again, and then we'll jump right back in. I hope you enjoy. Uh, My name is David Parrott, QC. I'm Queen's Counsel in Scotland. I'm also a barrister in England and Wales. I'm also a barrister in Northern Ireland. Hi, I'm Andrew Cuby. I sit as a sheriff at Glasgow Sheriff Court, one of 27 sheriffs here. I'm Maura Orr. I'm the Procurator Fiscal for Glasgow and I work for Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service. Now, we're often asked to give our opinion on wounds. You know, is it severe? Is it life-threatening? Let, let's let's start with severe. What What constitutes a severe injury in legal terms? Um, It's not as precise as you might think. Um, What we would say to juries, for example, is if they were dealing with a charge of assault to severe injury, that uh, the charge contains the expression to severe injury, that examples of severe injury include multiple lacerations, deep wounds, uh, wounds causing much loss of blood or broken bones, And if you, the jurors, are satisfied that that was a consequence of the assault, then you could leave that aggravation in. And it's no more detailed than that. Severe injury is an aggravation in law, which makes the charge against the accused a more serious one and will tend to bring most cases from the sheriff summary court into a sheriff and jury court. There is no strict legal definition of what a severe injury is. But, for example where there are fractures to limbs, injuries requiring a number of sutures, injuries requiring surgical intervention and incised wounds usually caused by knives or similar objects, we will often be inviting a jury to conclude that that injury is severe. Whilst you are the medical expert and any prosecutor will ask you if the injury in your view is severe, it still remains a matter for the jury to conclude whether they think that aggravation is found in law. The other two common aggravations are permanent impairment and permanent disfigurement. Simply because an injury leaves a scar after it has finished healing does not mean that it's disfiguring and we will look to see which part of the body it's in. For example, the face is more likely to be disfiguring than an area usually covered by clothing and how well an injury has healed will also impact upon that. Another aggravation is permanent impairment and this is where a victim, again after normal healing has concluded, has been left with an ongoing and permanent Artifact, for example, that they have permanent nerve damage, limiting movement or feeling in a part of their body. So you will find that most prosecutors will ask a number of questions aiming to allow you to answer the questions in a way that will tend to influence a jury to holding that the aggravation has been proved in law and they will therefore convict not only of the principal charge, for example, assault, but of the aggravation that the Crown has libelled. And what about scarring? Because we often get asked, is this wound likely to scar? How many stitches did you give the patient, etc.? So is there a legal significance to causing a scar? Well, yes, there is, because scarring would give rise to the aggravation of permanent disfigurement. And again, that's a matter of fact for the jury to determine. 
And the number of stitches is sometimes used as a shorthand version of establishing just how bad the injury was. So these are, if you like, legitimate questions that could give rise to um, a, a different charge. They could give rise to an aggravation of permanent disfigurement if there is going to be a scar. Okay, if you don't mind, I was going to ask you about life-threatening injuries. And this is something I've always slightly struggled with. Um, And I would be very interested to hear each of your particular opinions on this. Um, And I'll give you a case which kind of describes what I mean. And and it was a case not that long ago. I treated a a gentleman with a chest stabbing um, who by fluke turned out to be fine. And we patched him up. There was no major internal injury. He ultimately took a, his own irregular discharge, but we weren't too concerned. He was very well. And the police approached me for a statement. And as they always do, they asked me, doctor, was this a life-threatening injury? And as it turned out in this case, it wasn't, I guess. But I'm worried about what the impact of what I'm about to say has on the case overall. Um you know, if I say no, it turns out this wasn't a life-threatening injury. Is that something that um, the defence will play on further down the line? They'll say, oh, the doctor said it wasn't a life-threatening injury, therefore it's it's a less severe act or less severe punishment. Um, so am I supposed to say what or how life-threatening this particular case was or should I comment on how life-threatening cases like this can be in the majority of circumstances or or, or how should I answer that? I, I'd be interested to hear what each of you have to say on this. Well, yes, the, the decisions about the, the level at which to prosecute and what someone is prosecuted for are taken by the prosecuting authorities, uh, either the Crown Office or the local procurator fiscal deputy. Now, there, there are two reasons perhaps the police asking that. The first is to see whether an assault with a knife might be elevated to attempted murder. And so it's then important just factually whether or not it was life-threatening. We also see sometimes the aggravation of an assault being to danger of life, and that's slightly different because an assault can be to danger of life even if it involves no actual injury. And the example that we give to juries are throwing someone out of a car would obviously be an assault to danger of life if the car's moving even if the other person concerned had no injuries at all. So the Crown doesn't need to show life was actually put at risk. It's the potential for that. I think it's slightly different if the police are asking about life-threatening, and that, I suspect, is in the context of whether it can be elevated to a charge of attempted murder, and then you're looking at the actual outcome. Although I I don't suppose there's anything wrong with saying, well, no, this injury wasn't life-threatening, but it had the potential to be. First of all, causation is a really complex issue in law as is mens rea or the intention of an accused person who assaults someone and the most important thing for the Crown is to a description of the injuries you found investigations you carried out and any treatment you may or may not have given there may be occasions where you feel very comfortable saying that there was actual danger to life because of the severity or nature of the injuries in which case I expect you'd be confident answering that but 
A danger to life does not require to be actual. It can simply be potential. But if you don't feel comfortable answering that, then the Crown would simply look at all the information you've given about the injury, where it is, treatment and so forth, and to some extent use that together with other evidence that we have to decide whether it's appropriate for us to libel a danger to life or attempted murder. As we, um, in fact, as we've done on our training courses in the past, um, this is a real tricky one because the lawyers or the police will push you to express an opinion. But you're not there as an expert witness. You're there to give the facts. You must remember that. That's really crucial. So you can uh, give the evidence that you did. You saw that. Uh, you did this. Uh, you executed that. And then someone like me will say to you, okay, doctor, in all the years that you've been practicing medicine in accident and emergency or whatever, um, would you say that was a life-threatening injury or not? Now, careful there, because you are not an expert witness. You're not drawing on the body of knowledge and expertise at the moment. It might be later that you're called upon to give that expert testimony. But as at that time, you can give the factual version. In other words, I, I think it's a fine line. Oh, and this is a problem. It's a very fine line because you can say, I saw that injury, that puncture wound to the thorax and I did this and I did that and I patched them up and I stitched them up. And I think you can answer the question, if you hadn't done that, what would have happened? Don't, don't go into this intention thing. Don't go into, and therefore it was life-threatening. I'm not sure that's for you. But what you could say is, if I had not intervened, yes, it's likely... Remember, likely improbable. Uh, it's likely that this man would not have survived. And I think that's absolutely fine. What I do say and caution against is just stepping beyond the realm of your competence for that particular court case or that uh, evidence that you're giving. Experts themselves get caught out with this because they get pushed by people like me in questioning to overstep the mark. And I think you would be overstepping the mark to talk about incidences or likelihoods or probabilities um, or statistical evidence or even basing it on your 10 years of a &E experience to then say, oh, this is definitely what would have happened or this is likely to have happened. You stick to the facts. And I think factually you could say, if I hadn't done this, this is what is likely or would have happened. But going to the intention and, and the threat to life Whilst I appreciate it, it's a fine line. Just be cautious about that. That's fantastic. Thank you all very much for those answers. Um, so I think my take home is that we just present the facts. We we say what we did, uh, how we investigated, how we treated it, how this particular instance panned out. Um, and then we leave it to others further down the line to make an assessment of the the act itself, the 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 severity of or the or the intention behind the act is is, is that fair to say? Precisely, a, a, an assessment will be made by the prosecuting authorities of the where in the hierarchy of assaults this falls, and that can be attempted murder, assault to severe injury, permanent disfigurement, permanent impairment to danger of life, simply to injury, or even simply assault with no injury at all. It will be informed by the advice from the doctors, but not determined by it. Well, I, I think I would say uh, two things. Um, whatever the management of the patient is, uh, the treatment, that patient might have to go into 
surgery. And it would be the surgeon who carried out the operation that would speak to depth of penetration and all the rest of it. They're in a position to uh, express views potentially about what they saw internally. Uh, whereas what you're doing is just treating them as, they, as they're admitted. So I, I suppose I'd ask the question, who's better placed to comment on whether it was life-threatening or not? Uh, maybe by definition, by going into theatre, that would be the life-threatening event in itself. But you might be pushed, is what I was saying, into expressing that opinion, which I would say shy away from or be very cautious about. Secondly, it might be that uh, expert evidence itself is brought forward and led by uh, somebody with uh, uh, experience in that particular field. And the whole purpose of that evidence as expert testimony, and I, I stress the expert because they, they have to play by completely different rules, uh, duty to the court, etc., etc. And uh, that might be the vehicle or the mechanism for proving that particular thing at a later date. Okay, so we're now getting invited to participate in the court process. So there's kind of two kind of ways that could happen. Um, you could be cited to appear in court, uh, and sometimes you may also be invited to participate in a precognition. Um, Maura, you're probably the best person to answer these questions. Um, so if you would mind just starting with a citation, what is what would you like us to know about citations? If we want any witness to appear on behalf of the Crown in a criminal trial, we have to cite them in a way acceptable to the law, which usually means a police officer will come into your hospital and leave a citation for you. Citations do have a standing in law and you are obliged in law to answer a citation which has been served on you. We fully understand that doctors have busy days shift patterns, clinics, and that your absence from these has a significant impact on your colleagues and also on uh, patients. So what we would say to you is that when you do receive a citation to come to court, please make contact with us as soon as possible and we will discuss that with you. Now, I seem to get a lot of these citations, yet a very small percentage of them require my actual presence in court. So what would be the main reasons for that? What, what are the main reasons that, that uh, my, my presence is no longer required? Two reasons for that. Firstly, there might be court scheduling problems, in which case cases go off by virtue of there being no sheriff or judge to hear the case, and it gets what's called bumped. Or, uh, and this, this happens a lot, that the accused person decides to plead guilty at the last minute. And... Uh, Therefore, you're not called upon to give your evidence. I suppose there's a third way um, as well, that uh, as they get closer to the trial and the two sides, the prosecution and the defence, are thinking about what they actually have to prove, it's possible that they can agree your evidence and therefore not require you to attend at the court. And that, that's the thing really, isn't it? It's Most of the time we're not required, yet there would be a lot of... Um, responding to these citations, a lot of potentially even planning around uh, potential involvement with the court, which kind of feels a little bit disruptive when the vast majority don't end up um, requiring our presence. So we were chatting a wee bit about it earlier, more, but can you just clarify um, what you kind of try to do to minimise any disruption to us? When you contact us, we will look at the trial we should then know whether it's likely to start or less likely to start. We will usually be able to make an arrangement 
that you come to court when it's least inconvenient for you. We can place you in standby so you can remain at your work until such time as we telephone you. If you're on holiday, we'll absolutely do everything we possibly can to avoid citing you when you're on holiday, including adjourning a trial if necessary to a time that suits you. So we would say to you, contact us when you get a citation and also please contact us when you get a witness availability form because that should prevent us fixing a diet for when you're unavailable because you're on holiday. So many, many thanks to our guests. I think my main take-home points today are number one, in terms of severe injury, this is an aggravation in law which sits alongside permanent disfigurement and permanent impairment. And it takes a case from a summary court to his sheriff and jury court. And although there is no strict legal definition, examples would include multiple lacerations, deep wounds, loss of blood, broken bones, or requiring surgical intervention. Number two, in terms of life-threatening injury, when we are asked to describe whether injuries are life-threatening or not, we should remember that our primary purpose is witness to fact. That is just to describe the injury, what investigations we carried out and what treatment was given. We should be careful not to stray beyond our own competence or expertise. But if asked for further opinion on the injury, don't answer if you don't feel comfortable doing so. But if you do, it would be fair to suggest what may have happened had you not provided the treatment that you did. But remember to say things like it is likely or it is probable that such and such may have occurred. And finally, number three, in terms of citations, these are requests from the Crown Office to appear on their behalf in a criminal trial, and they do have a standing in law, so you are obliged to answer them. So please make contact with the Procurator Fiscal's office when you receive one, and they will do their best to minimise any disruption to your work or life. So they can inform you of the likelihood of it going to trial, they will try and make it at a time most convenient to you, including avoiding holidays, and they can also place you on standby so you can remain at work as long as possible and only phone you when you are needed. So many, many thanks again to our special guests. Many thanks to you for listening. Please visit stmungos-ed.com where you can find the show notes for this episode plus a lot more additional educational resources for your enjoyment. Take care. Take care.